0: The following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit Well, Last week, we sought to understand and unpack something of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The fact that our God is in the heavens, he rules and he reigns in and over all of creation, with absolute power and absolute authority. We saw how God is more than just a divine fortune teller sitting on his throne with a crystal ball in hand, telling and predicting the future. We considered the fact that he knows the future because he has planned the future. He stated in Isaiah chapter 46, that there is none like him, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet accomplished, saying, my counsel, my plan, my design shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. Daniel 4.35 says that he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stay his hand. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? When God declares the future, he says, as in Isaiah 14.26, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6 says, Jehoshaphat speaking, You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Psalm 33, verse 11 says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Proverbs nineteen twenty-one says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 21, 30 says, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against Yahweh. And we saw how God's sovereignty, we saw how he sovereignly rules over the sinful actions of human beings in such a way that he never sins or pressures his creatures to sin. We see this, for example, in the story of Joseph, where at the end of the story, he could say to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The word Joseph uses for meant is elsewhere translated as devised or planned. His brothers meant evil against Joseph, but God devised and planned that evil for good. And of course, the greatest example of God sovereignly ruling the sinful actions of human beings to bring about his purposes is the crucifixion of his own dear son, In Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching there on the day of Pentecost, he says to the Jews, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite, determined plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The cross wasn't something God simply knew about in his divine foreknowledge. We are told here that it was his predetermined plan. It was his plan from before time began. Of course, people try to get around this by saying, well, yeah, he foresaw that it would happen and therefore he made it his plan. God kind of hijacked it. See, it's going to happen, therefore it's my plan. I'm calling it first. That's not the case here, folks. He, some say, sought to redeem it and use it for his glory. As if man is the ultimate mover of history and God is simply the reactor. He is simply reacting to what man is doing. But as Acts chapter 4 verse 27 says, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered together against God's holy servant Jesus to do, quote, whatever God's hand and whatever God's plan had predestined or determined beforehand to take place. Well, this morning, we come to our second study in this series where we are considering the doctrines of grace, or rather where we are examining from the Bible the saving work of the triune God. That's really what we are studying. How the triune God saves sinners. This morning, we want to consider the objects of salvation, the recipients of salvation. By the way, whenever I say the word doctrine, I'm simply referring to a belief or a teaching that is commonly held by people. This morning, we'll be considering the biblical doctrine of total Depravity, total depravity. The word depravity means, quote, moral corruption or wickedness. The doctrine of total depravity has to do with the condition or the state that the human race is in and has been in ever since the fall in Genesis chapter three. Just to be clear at the outset, the doctrine of total depravity does not insist that human beings are as bad as they possibly can be. It's a common misunderstanding. In other words, that we're saying that everyone is a Adolf Hitler. We have the potential to be an Adolf Hitler were it not for God's common grace holding us back. But that's not what we we're saying. If that was the case, we might call it utter depravity. So in a sense, the phrase total depravity can be a bit misleading if we don't take the time to define our terms. Perhaps a better name for this biblical doctrine would be radical corruption. The word radical comes from the Latin word for root. So in saying that human beings are radically corrupt, we are saying that moral corruption lies at the very root of who and what we are apart from the transforming grace of God. This is how God finds us when he saves us. Radically corrupt totally depraved, sinful, through and through. By inserting the word total before depravity, we are saying that our depravity or our moral corruption is total. That is, every part, every aspect of man's being, his body, his mind, his will, his heart, his affections, his emotions, his conscience, everything about the, the man has been affected by sin. That's total, that's thorough depravity, that's comprehensive depravity. It's affected everything about us. In other words, there isn't a single aspect a man has that has not been corrupted by sin. There's not an island of righteousness somewhere deep within the heart that, as we're going to see, everything has been corrupted. That's what we mean by the word total in total depravity, biblically, man's Mind is darkened. His will is enslaved by sin. His mind is at enmity with God, Romans 8. His heart is deceitful and desperately sick. His emotions are perverted and twisted and broken, and his affections are naturally attracted to that which is evil and that which is godless. That's the way they gravitate. His conscience is broken. It's unreliable. It's untrustworthy. We see that today. We call evil good and good evil. That's the consciences of fallen man. And lastly, the body has been affected by sin as well. Paul says we groan inwardly, awaiting the redemption of these bodies. Our bodies are affected with sin. They're in a state of decay. They're in a state of perpetual brokenness. They're reeked with Pain and suffering and sickness and sorrow and cancer and disease. And the list goes on. From the moment of conception, the body begins to die. It's slowly dying. And all because of sin. That's what we mean when we say that our depravity is total. Or to use the words of Isaiah 5, when describing sin, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. That's the biblical picture of man. Now, we were not created like this. That is, God did not form Adam from the dust of the ground and instill this depravity in him. The Bible tells us that God made man upright. Man was good when God looked upon his creation, which included man. He says, it is very good. Very good. In fact, man is the only creature that we are told of who was made in the image and likeness of God. Man was created to be a living, breathing statue of God, representing God in this world, in the ancient Near East. Kings would set up images of themselves to represent their dominion. Man was made as an image bearer of God, and even though we are now fallen and totally depraved, we still bear God's image to some degree. We might be broken image bearers, but we are image bearers nonetheless. However, being made in God's image doesn't negate or nullify or in any way cancel out the effects of the fall. Sometimes when these discussions within Christian circles for years, when they arise regarding total depravity and the sinfulness of man and the sinfulness of sin, some are quick to fall back to the fact that while we're made in God's image, as if that cancels out everything else the Bible says about our deep-rooted sinfulness and corruption. And so let's just Begin where the Bible begins. Let's trace our history back to the very beginning. And so I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 15. Genesis 2 15. We read these words The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Skip down to Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And what do we find in the very next verse? What do we find them doing? They go and hide from the Lord. And so a lot of people read this and say, I thought that God said that in the day that they ate of this tree, they would die. Why didn't they drop dead? Well, they did die. They died spiritually. How do we know this? Because almost immediately after they ate the fruit, they go and hide from God. There was a separation, or to use the language of Genesis 3.23 and 24, God sent the man out of the garden. He drove him out. Both of those Hebrew words are used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe divorce. When man sinned, he was divorced from life. He was divorced from goodness. He was divorced from God. Paul put it like this in Romans chapter 5 Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so, death spread to all men because all sinned. Death spread to all mankind as a result of the fall. Separation from God spread to all mankind as a result of the fall. And friends, Romans chapter 5 isn't just physical death. This is death, period. Physical death is the result of spiritual death, which is separation from God. It's separation from the life of God. To be dead is to be separated from from God, as Isaiah 59 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. And this deadness, Paul says, spread to all men after Adam. All of Adam's descendants are born dead, dead in sin, separated from God. That's all humanity. We're born this way. David confessed in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58, verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. In other words, they're separated from God, from the womb. And they go astray from birth, speaking wise. That's why when Paul addresses the Ephesians and the Colossians, he says, You were made alive when you were previously dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's the reason Jesus says you must be born again. Being born dead is the reason Jesus taught that we must be born again. If we're to, number one, see the kingdom and to enter the kingdom. Otherwise, we can't see it, can't enter it, we're dead. A rebirth is absolutely necessary. Jesus answered Nicodemus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit Is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Let's consider the inmost part of man, the heart. We've just done a series on Proverbs four twenty three, guarding the heart, keeping the heart. We've shown again and again that the heart is the core, the root of all that we are as human beings. The heart. We read this if you want to turn a little bit further in Genesis chapter six. Genesis chapter 6. And let's read verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Mark those three words. Every only continually. And you might say, well, the flood wipe that out. We gotta reset. Man isn't that bad anymore. We'll skip to Genesis chapter eight. In between Genesis six and eight, we read about the flood. God destroying the world in his wrath against a violent, sinful humanity. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil and continually. Genesis 8.21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma from Noah's sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Evil from his youth. We find this later on in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. This is an evil in all that is under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, full of it. No room for anything else. It's full. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. What is overflowing in the heart of man? It's evil. Wickedness. Depravity. He says madness is in their hearts while they live. Sin has literally made mankind insane. Sin has so corrupted mankind that it is a miracle of common grace that we can count to 10. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Some are saying, you know, all mankind is are just sick. They just need a little bit of healing. Well, we're sick and we're also dead and we take both truths in hand. We are dead and we are desperately sick. Who can understand the heart? He goes on to say that only God can understand the heart. Jesus taught this same truth regarding the heart of man, that what comes out of a person is what defiles man. Why is man defiled? It's because of the depraved spring that rests within the heart of man. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder adultery coveting wickedness deceit sensuality envy slander pride foolishness all these things come from within and they defile a person that's why man is defiled and depraved is because of his heart next consider what man loves John 3:19 says this, this is the Lord Jesus speaking regarding the final judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's interesting that the day of judgment is summarized with what man loves. No mention of all their sins, no mention of what's in the books that we read about in Revelation 20. The books were opened. The books containing everything we've done. None of that. Because all of that flows from what we love. It flows from our love for darkness. People loved the darkness. That's why they commit sexual immorality, because they love the darkness. That's why they steal, is because they love the darkness. That's why they murder and commit adultery, That's why they cherish evil thoughts. That's why they covet. That's why they are wicked. That's why they are deceitful. That's why they are sensual. That's why they are envious and they are slanderers. And that's why they're proud. And that's why they're foolish. It's because man loves the darkness rather than the light. Next, consider what the Bible says about man's mind. Man's mind. Turn to Romans chapter one with me, if you will. Romans chapter one. My whole intention in these series of sermons is just to let the Bible speak to us regarding what we were to believe about how God, the triune God, saves us. Romans chapter one. After Paul tells us that the existence of God is evident, and plain to all so that there is no legitimate atheists out there. He says in verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then verse 28 is the third giving up. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit, mankind... Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Here's that word filled again. Look at verse 29. They were filled, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, filled with all manner of evil, filled with all manner of covetousness, filled with all manner of malice. It's there in the second sentence. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, and here it is, haters of God. This is what we just saw in John chapter 3, verse 19. Here's the condemnation. Here's the judgment. People loved the darkness rather than the light. They hate the light. Romans 1.30, they are haters of God insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's the mind. The mind has been given over to sin fills the mind. Go a little bit further with me in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to come back to this a little bit later as well. But I want to highlight the mind here in Romans chapter 8. Let's begin in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. He's contrasting here, the believer and the unbeliever. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, and this is all of humanity, because of the fall, is hostile to God, hateful towards God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's why Romans one thirty says that men are haters of God. You were a hater of God before you were converted. Maybe you went to church. Maybe you were religious, but you would have nothing to do with the God of the Bible as He presented, as He's presented in the God of the Bible, in, in the Scriptures. You went to church maybe to satisfy this desire to tick off the, you know, check off the religious mark, the checkbox but you were a hater of the light. You were a hater of the light. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, regarding the mind, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Not only do we have a debased mind, but we have an absolutely blind mind. Mind, absolutely blind. It doesn't say partially blind or mostly blind. The God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. Ephesians chapter two, verse three says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and The mind. The body is a servant of the mind. The body, the members of our bodies, they are servants. The mind says, I want that depraved thing. The hands go and get it. The mind says, I want a lust after that. The eyes obey. They are servants to our minds. And we were by nature, by nature, that means from birth, children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Children on whom the wrath of God was abiding, as John 3.36 says. A little bit further in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4.17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. By nature, our minds are consumed with that which is futile, worthless, vain, empty. Notice further, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. It's not getting any better as we look at man in his natural state apart from the grace of God regeneration. Titus chapter one, verse 15 says to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. The unbeliever's mind is absolutely defiled. It's darkened, alienated from God, debased, depraved, full of vanity. Now, when we talk about spiritual death or spiritual deadness, we do not mean that mankind is inactive. When Paul says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, he doesn't say you were dead in not doing anything. You were dead, but you were on a death march, a death march to hell following the devil following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air you were dead you were the walking dead you were like a spiritual zombie marching to hell spiritually dead people are very active they're dead to god but very much alive to sin And that's what we all once were we who are now in christ Well, not only were we dead, but secondly, I want you to see from the Bible that all mankind, apart from God's grace, all men are enslaved. All humans are enslaved to sin. Jesus taught this in John chapter 8, verse 34. He said to the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if death spread to all men because all sinned, and if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and lack the glory of God, if we're all inclined to sin, and if we're all born in this state of sin before we even can take steps and walk, we are enslaved to sin. Whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. 2 Peter 2.19 says, Of these false teachers that they promise people freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And then he adds, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. To that he is enslaved. We are born already overcome by sin. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Notice, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were slaves to our various passions and pleasures. Do we get what that means? Slaves don't escape on their own. Slaves can get under the power of their master on their own, at least biblically. The master says, and the slave obeys. The master commands, the slave obeys. The master moves his hand, the slave obeys. The master directs, the slave obeys. You see this in that monumental chapter regarding slavery in Romans chapter six. Do you not know, verse 16, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, there it is, you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You might be here and you might be admittedly An unbeliever, you want nothing to do with Christ. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here listening. What better place to be than hearing the word of life, hearing about eternal life, the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. But I want you to see that what we're describing this morning is not just our past, but your present. You're a slave of sin. How do you know that? Can you go the next few minutes without sinning? By the way, as Romans says, Romans chapter 14, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We have such a low view of sin and a high view of ourselves. If we could truly see ourselves the way God sees us, if you could see yourself the way God sees you, you might count three sins in the next minute, whereas an infinitely holy God could count many, many more than that, much more than that. At, at, at no given moment, at, you, you, there's never a moment where any of us are loving God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our might and all of our, 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 our minds. We're just not in that condition in any way. Thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin. You've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, notice that. Someone might say, well, that's, what the, that's, what the, change, that, that's the change. I became obedient from the heart. Verse 18 says, you've been set free from sin. The son set you free and you are now free indeed. We were once slaves of sin. Slaves to impurity, slaves to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. By the grace of God, we can now present our members as slaves of righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, there there is nothing righteous about your life. Nothing righteous about your life. You were sin's slave. Well, not only are we depraved, in heart. Not, all, not only are we dead in sin, not only are we enslaved to sin, but the Bible also teaches that regarding the natural man, he is not only enslaved to sin, but enslaved to Satan. We were slaves of the devil, we were his slaves. We are now set free. The stronger one came in, destroyed this strong man, and took all his captives. First John chapter three, verse 10, says, "By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." So John, in his very sim- simple fashion, very cut and dry says there's two types of people in this world. There are those who are children of God and children of the devil. He says in chapter five, verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world. He's not talking about the lilies and the flowers, the birds, he's talking about humanity. Lies in the power of the evil one. If you are not in Christ, you lie in the power of the evil one. You can't escape. You are a slave. Jesus taught this same thing, by the way, in John 8, 44. Speaking to these unbelieving opponents, he says, you are of your father, the devil. <laughs> you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Unbelievers are in the power of the evil one. Satan is their father. They are children of the devil. We find this again in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world. Now listen, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan not only is their father, but he is at work in them. Sons of disobedience is just another word for the unbelieving. We find this more. We find, we find more of this in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. He says that the servant of the Lord must be gentle in correcting his opponents. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The unbeliever belongs to the devil in order to do his will. And, folks, this is universal. What we're talking about regarding the sinfulness of man, the total depravity of human beings, this is universal. This is not just, to use the language of Paul, the barbarians. These are the sophisticated Greeks of Paul's time, these are the Romans. These are the Jews, Romans chapter 2. This is all mankind. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. It's interesting that in the diary of Anne Frank, she still at the end talks about how she still believes that at the heart of man that People are are good. It's tragic for having walked through that to still believe that at the heart of it all, people are genuinely good. The Bible tells us otherwise. Romans chapter three, listen to these words. What then, verse nine, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, this is all of humanity, are under sin. Mark that down. All are under sin. That means under its power, under its control, under its authority. As he'll go on and develop in chapter 6, chapter 5. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Here's the corruption of the mind again. No one seeks for God, the corruption of the will. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. What does that mean? Well, we are dead spiritually. We are dead within. Jesus said that... of the Pharisees, they were like dead men's bones, right? They're, they, 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 outwardly, it's a nice sepulcher, but inwardly, they're dead men's bones. Well, here, Paul kind of says the same thing. Their throat is an open grave because within is death. Our bodies are just a sepulcher. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the problem of man. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is universal. This is not just the people living out on this remote island somewhere. This is all of humanity. This is your unconverted neighbor. This is your unconverted schoolmate, classmate. These are your unconverted coworkers. And for those of you outside of Christ this morning, this is you. The Bible comes to you. God comes to you and mercifully lays before you your condition so that you flee to him for mercy. It's good to be to have this self-awareness of what you are. All have sinned. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Well, you've seen that we are dead. have seen that we are depraved. You've seen that we are enslaved both to sin and Satan. The Bible also says regarding our Depravity, that we are disabled. We are disabled. We are absolutely powerless to do anything spiritually good. At the right time, Christ died for us. When? When we were absolutely powerless, Paul says. We were without strength, unable to do anything spiritually good for ourselves. Worse than a, worse than a cripple. Job 14.4 says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. In addressing, now, religious people in the Old Testament, those who had the oracles of God, those who had been enlightened of the ways of God, in other words, those who are probably on a moral scale better than all the inhabitants of the rest of the world, still sinners, yes, but... Enlightened by God, Jeremiah 13:23 says, "Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil." There is no one good, not even one. God says to his people, "It's impossible For you to do good. Just as it is impossible for the Ethiopian to change the color of his skin. Just as it is impossible for the leopard to change his spots. It is impossible for you to do good. Who are accustomed to doing evil. Man is a spiritual cripple. Disabled. Very much active. Very much marching to hell. Very much alive to sin but unable to do any spiritual good. Jesus taught this in Matthew 7 regarding trees and fruit. Every sound tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears evil fruit. A sound tree cannot bear evil fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. you we say, well, he's talking about false teachers there. He's not talking about all of humanity. Well, let's go to Matthew 12, 33. Jesus says, either make the tree good, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad, and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. We are naturally born bad trees. Therefore, we naturally produce and only produce bad trees. Fruit. No good fruit comes from a bad tree. You don't have a diseased tree. It's impossible. Bringing forth good fruit. This doesn't happen. We don't look to bad trees to bear any amount of good fruit. What has to happen first? Make the tree good. And its fruit will be good. What is that? That's the miracle of regeneration where God changes us from the very root, changes us at the very core, makes the tree good and thus it begins to bear good fruit. Turn with me to, see there's so much and I've already purposed that if we don't get through it all here, we're going to cover this again next week because there's so much here regarding the depravity of man. Let's consider all that man in his sin is unable to do. Number one, unregenerate sinners are unable to speak what God counts as good. Matthew 12, 34 and 37, Jesus says, Oh, generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? What do we have in common with these vipers, these Pharisees? We're evil. Jesus even called his disciples evil. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your father in heaven? What do we have in common with them? We're evil. Therefore, how can you speak anything truly good from the heart? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Secondly, we're unable to obey God's law and to even please God, to do anything pleasing to God. Turn with me again to Romans chapter 8. I said we'd come back to this. Romans chapter 8. In and of ourselves, we are unable to obey God's law and to please God. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It can't. What is God's law? It's a summary of God's law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Guess what? You cannot do that. That's not me. That's the Apostle Paul. You can't do that. As an unbeliever, you can't do that. Someone will say, as has been objected in many areas, well, then they're not accountable. Oh, so God lowers his standards because you love your sin so much. Oh, so God doesn't send you to hell because you love the darkness rather than the light? Who are you, oh man, to question the justice of God? We'll see that in Romans 9 in a few weeks. Man is unable to submit to God's law. It cannot. He cannot. And if that isn't clear enough, look at verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The unbeliever cannot do a single thing that's pleasing to God. Now, we would reject the idea that Again, we're, we're not talking about utter depravity here this morning because unbelievers, on a horizontal level, they do good things. They build hospitals, they rescue children, they take care of orphans. There's a, there's a, there's a plethora of things that unbelievers do that, on a horizontal scale, are, are very good, and we're thankful for. We're thankful for uh, people who, who do things that are, from a human perspective, just very heroic. We're not talking about that. We're talking about actually pleasing God. Something that God can look at and say, I'm pleased with that. That brings me delight. That brings me joy. Those who are in the flesh, the unbelieving, they cannot please God. Thirdly, unbelieving people cannot be saved in and of themselves Matthew 19:25 says that when his disciples heard it they were exceedingly amazed saying then who can be saved but Jesus beheld them and said unto them with men this is impossible with men this is impossible with God all things are possible furthermore spiritually dead people are unable to spiritually perceive or even enter God's kingdom let's go to John 3 again John chapter 3 Jesus talking to Nicodemus, verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Can't even perceive it. Much less enter it. Look at as we continue to go, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, unable in and of himself to even perceive, to understand the things of the kingdom, to see it and enter it. Furthermore, let's go to John chapter 8. spiritually dead people are unable to hear god's word. Oh they can hear it with the ear. They can't hear it in the heart. They cannot hear it in the heart. That's why Jesus often said, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear." He's not talking about that funny looking thing hanging on your heads. By the way, I've heard a preacher say that the only the only time an ear looks good is with a head. If if, if you look at an ear just by itself, it's it's hideous. It looks good on the head, but anyways, that's not the point. Verse 39, Jesus is disputing with these Pharisees. They're arguing that they've never been enslaved to anything or anyone. And Jesus tells them that they've been enslaved to sin. That's verses 31 through 38. And verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father, because you remember he had just told him in 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They don't know that he's referring to the devil until in a few verses here. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Now listen to this. Why do you not understand what I say? In other words, why are you not getting this? Why is it not clicking? Why are the lights not turning on? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Why? Verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Spiritually dead people cannot bear to hear God's word in a, in a way that leads to their true understanding because they love the darkness rather than the light. They cannot hear God's word with an open mind. Furthermore, we're talking about man being dead, depraved, enslaved, disabled. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want you to see, in addition to these things, that man, by himself, is unable to receive the truth as revealed by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Notice what the Apostle Paul says here. Verse 12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this as apostles in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. What's the context here? The truth The gospel, Paul is saying, we apostles received the spirit so that we can then impart the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel in words that are not originating in man, but in words that are from the spirit of God. Now notice verse 14. This is a major cannot here. The natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. What are those things? Truths, spiritual truths, verse 13, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. That's why elsewhere he will say that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. But to the blind, spiritually dead person, they don't receive them. And notice the rest of the verse. In case that isn't clear to us. And he is not able to understand them because these things are spiritually discerned. He is not able. These truths are radically humbling to fallen man. Man who says, I can, I can, I will, I will. God says, You can't. You can't. You're unable. He didn't give his people the law because they were, they'd be able to do it. He gave them the law to show them their need for a savior. I love the way the Bible humbles man. We live in such a, a proud world where man says, I'm the, I'm the maker of my own destiny. I will... God says, you can't even understand these things. You can't understand spiritual truths. You are unable to understand them. Except for when the Spirit begins to work. And when he begins to work, he finishes his work. There's no instance where God begins to work in someone, give them understanding, and then they just don't get it, and then he walks away. He who begins a good work finishes his work. When God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, he completes that work. He leads his people to glory, as we're going to see in just a few weeks. First Corinthians 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Moving on. No unbeliever is able to confess from the heart that Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. In other words, anybody can say it. Kenneth Copeland says it on the back of his pulpit. It says, Jesus is Lord. But to truly say it from the heart as one who submits to the authority of Christ, no one can come to do that except except by the Spirit of God. We've already seen this. No unbeliever can bear any amount of good fruit. Cannot even please God. Bad tree cannot bear good fruit. You gotta make the tree good first. John 15, five, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He says that to his people, his disciples. He who abides in me and I in him The same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If he can say that of a believer, how much more is it true of the unbeliever? Can't even, there's nothing. Well, we get to the final one, I suppose, for today. The natural man in and of himself is unable to come to Christ in faith. And for that, I point you to John chapter six. John chapter six. You remember the context. He has just fed thousands. The crowd follows him. And he calls him out He says, you're not following me to follow me. You're following me because you had your bellies filled. He calls him out. In verse 35, we'll pick it up there. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me. Here's the context. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So he's going to be using these terms synonymously. Coming to him and believing in him. Coming to him and believing in him. Coming to him and believing in him. him him. Again, verse 36, but I said This is a beautiful tapestry when you put it all together. You have a picture of the father giving sinners to the son and the son saying, this is his will that I lose none of them. In other words, his perfect sacrifice will guarantee their glorification, their perfect redemption. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up. On the last day. So it begins with the Father giving people to the Son, and it ends with the Son raising them up, right? In glory, glorifying them. Paul says that he will come back and he will transform our lowly bodies and he will glorify us with a body like his own. He will lift us up. He will raise us up on the last day. That's the reward. That's the goal. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Who are all these people who look on the Son and believe in Him? All that the Father gives them. All that the Father gives me will come to me. They will look on the Son and they will have eternal life. And again, verse 40, the end, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What a Savior! Well, the grumbling continues, verse 41, because the Jews or the Gentiles or anyone in this world, natural man does not like to be entirely dependent upon God for such things. And so they grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Remember, he previously told them that if they didn't eat of him, they would die. They said, verse 42, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. And now notice this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We're looking at all the cannots, all the unables. Here's a huge one, perhaps the biggest one. No one can come to me, sorry, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That word draw will be used later on in chapter 21 to describe the disciples drawing the net to shore. It's used in Acts chapter 16 of the people dragging Paul and Silas into the marketplace. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me drags him in draws him in with cords of everlasting love. No one can come to me. By the, word, by the way, the word can there is able. No one is able to come to me. Look up that word later. Everywhere it's used in the New Testament. No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And what's the result? And I will raise him up on the last day. Conclusion? All that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. No one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. Everyone that's drawn by the Father will be raised up by Christ on the last day. This is glorious, unbreakable chain, this tapestry of sovereign grace that glorifies the triune God. No one is able to come to me No one is able to believe in me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Those who were drawn are those who were raised up. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give... For the life of the world is my flesh. Well, as expected, the grumbling continues. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For the flesh... Well, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Do you take offense at this? Then what if, I were to, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Which they would in Acts chapter 1, right? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you were spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, listen, here it is again. No one can come to me What's the context of coming? It's believing. Look at the previous verse. Some who do not believe. He knew those who would not believe. This is why I told you that no one can, no one is able to come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Well, look at the result of this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him what was the nail in the coffin that made people turn away? That you can't do it. That you're unable. You supposed determiner of your own future. You are unable to come to me unless the Father grants you. Unless the Father draws you. And people say, oh, but no, 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 no. Let's go to... John chapter 12, where we see him draw, he says, if I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you get what he's saying there? By the cross, all people will be drawn, right? But the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So are you saying that he's gonna draw all people by the spectacle of death? Or can we not... See this in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, that those who are drawn to the bloody message of the scandalous cross are drawn and are swept in because they've been given minds to see and appreciate it that this, was, this that was once foolishness to me is now the very power of God to save me. What changed? It wasn't you. It was God that changed you. God enlightened the mind in the work of regeneration so that you would see Christ as worthy of being eaten as the bread of life. This is why I told you that no one is able, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now it begs the question, why is it that these passages Romans 8, why cannot man please God? Why is it that man cannot do anything pleasing to God? Why is it that no one can come to the Son unless it's granted him by the Father? Why can no one come to the Son? Why is no one able to come to the Son unless the Father draws him? Why is that? Is there, is there this, you know, unseen force from God holding the sinner down? No, friends, we have to see this consistent with the whole of Scripture. Why don't they come to the light? He already established that in John chapter 3 because they love the darkness and they hate the light. They cannot come because they will not come. Man is unable because he is unwilling. He is unwilling. This is not like a man whipping his horse to run while it's chained to the pole. This is not that. This is man being unable to come because he is unwilling. He can't. Is a lion physically able to eat straw like an ox? Of course it is. But it's, in one sense, it can't. It won't. Why? Because it's not its nature. We are dead, we are depraved, we are enslaved. By nature, we are deprived, we are disabled, and lastly, we are doomed because of it. And again, the famous objection, well, how can God damn us if we're unable? But friend, again, the inability is owing to your own love for sin. And so should God not hold you accountable? Should God not hold to his standards just because you love your sin so much? Well, is this a practical doctrine? Some would argue no. You don't want to tell the unbeliever that he's he's unable to do this. You don't want to tell an unbeliever that he's totally depraved. You're going to scare them away. Friends, it's practical for reason number one. Why is it practical to look into the biblical doctrine of total depravity and absolute inability because of our love for the darkness? It's profitable for this first reason. It's, it humbles us. It humbles us. It leaves absolutely no room for boasting. You we say, well, I'm not boasting, but it leaves you room to boast. I get that you're not boasting, but the way God has designed it is that even if you tried to boast, you couldn't boast. It humbles us, it presents us as spiritual beggars who can only receive and not contribute anything for it. Who can give a gift to God that he should be repaid? You can't. All you can do is receive. And even that, Paul says, Why do you act as if you. Why do you boast as if you've received something? It's humbling to know that this is what we would still be, friends, if God's grace did not intervene in our lives. Every one of us who are believers, we might not be an Adolf Hitler, we might not be an Osama bin Laden, we might not be these things, That we would still be depraved, dead, enslaved, deprived, disabled, and doomed. Secondly, is this a profitable doctrine? Profitable, number one, yes, to humble us. But number two, to gladden us. To gladden us, to know that this is what I was when he found me. This is what I was when he called my name. This is the state I was in. When he said, Justin, come alive. (laughs) This This is how he found me. And this is how he found you. God saved us. And thirdly, this is profitable to discuss and talk about because this equips us in three ways. It equips us, number one, to know the people that we are called to go to in the Great Commission. The same Christ who said, no one is able to come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father, unless it's, he's drawn by the Father, is the same one who said, go into all the world and proclaim the good news. Knowing the truth of total depravity helps us to know the people that we are going to. It helps us to not put any faith in them and all our faith in God who raises the dead. It helps us to see what kind of people we're dealing with because not only were we that way, but this is, this is how they think. Their, their mind is darkened. They will never, ever perceive these spiritual truths apart from the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14. They won't come to it. Flesh and blood, Jesus told Peter, did not reveal to you that I'm the Christ. Forget that we've been traveling together. You see that I'm, I'm working miracles, signs and wonders, but flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. The second way that this truth of total depravity equips us is that it equips us with compassion and pity to know when we see people utterly broken and enslaved and knowing that that is self-inflicted, that they love it, that they're licking their chains, should that not cause us to well up with pity and compassion, knowing that they are absolutely enslaved to sin to Satan, having been captured by him to do his will, it equips us with pity and compassion. We don't want to talk about these doctrines in a high ivory tower where we just are armchair theologians. No, friends, we accept these truths in the context of a broken world. And it helps us. It equips us to know the kind of people we are going to. And thirdly, it equips us not just with the knowledge of who they are, Not just the pity for the state they're in, but thirdly, it equips us with boldness to do what we are called to do in the Great Commission, knowing that God will raise the dead, that all that the Father gives to the Son will not might but will come to Him, and He will raise them up. They will hear His voice. They will come to Him. You say, I don't like this system, it it just it doesn't make any sense. How can you say that we're dead and disabled and unable to come to the Son unless the Father does the work? And then call me to repentance and faith? How can you say I'm dead and I can't do anything and yet call me to repent and believe? Problems not with me. problems with the Bible with the Bible. As a physically dead person is unable to do any physical good, so a spiritually dead person is unable to do any spiritual good. Dead is dead. You might say, why would God command dead sinners to repent and believe? Well, you tell me, why does he command the lame to walk? Why does he command the man with the crippled hand to stretch out his hand? Why did he command the earth to bring forth living creatures? Why does he command the dead to live? Why did he command Lazarus to come out of the tomb? How could he do that? Why does he command these things? Why does he command the impossible? Because he accomplishes it. Why does God command the impossible? Let's look at Ezekiel 37 and we'll end here. I love that in Ezekiel 37, we are given a picture of oh, everything we are, just, we are talking about. Man's deadness, man's utter inability, God's power, the instrument of humans in preaching and proclaiming, it all comes together here in Ezekiel chapter 37. beginning in verse one, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones and he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. Twice dead, Jude might say. Very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. That's the common denominator in all this. I will, verse five. So I prophesied as I was commanded. Some of you find yourself in this tension right now. I don't know that if I can, you know, hearing these truths of total depravity, how could I go out to the world and call them to repent and believe? if they're depraved and doomed and disabled and everything we've just looked at. That was his predicament. Look at what he did. He obeyed, like you're called to obey. Verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Same word in the Hebrew as spirit, ruach. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. We go into this graveyard of this world with the gospel announcement that if they turn and repent and believe and lay hold of Christ as the bread of life, that they'll be given eternal life. And all that the Father gives to the Son, they will have the Spirit of God enter them in that moment of proclamation and they will believe It will freely run into his arms as he planned. Salvation is of the Lord and we delight in that. Let's pray together.